You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 37. So in this week's episode, I wanted to do something a little bit different with all the uh, craziness that goes on today, especially on social media and the internet in general. I wanted to talk about photo ethics, and I'm going to be joined for today's episode by Jill Mott, and we are going to get started right now. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 37. I want to take a moment and thank all my listeners for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in iTunes and anywhere else you might be listening to the show, which also includes Radio.com as of the last couple of months. We want to thank the folks at Radio.com again for adding the show to their library. So for this week's episode, I wanted to cover a topic that's kind of a hot topic these days. And simply put, we're going to want to talk about photo ethics. Now, I'm sure many of my listeners have seen photographs that have been posted on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or other social media platforms. They end up going viral. And then it comes out that the photograph is a total fake, that somebody doctored the photo in one form or another and then posted it because they had some sort of agenda or they were trying to get it to go viral and make themselves famous. So I'm going to be joined now by Jill. And uh, Jill, how are you doing? Hi, great. So nice to be back with you on your podcast. Yeah, it's awesome to have you back this week. And I, and I love the topic that we're going to be talking about in today's episode, photo ethics. And as I was saying in the intro, uh, you know, most of my listeners, I'm sure, have seen photos on the internet, social media, whatever the case may be, that they personally got all worked up about. The image ended up going viral, and then it comes out later that the image was completely manipulated or fabricated, that it wasn't a true representation of what was going on. Or maybe the photograph itself hadn't been doctored, but the captions included with it were extremely misleading. Yes, there's a lot of different ways that we can be fooled by photos, captions, stories, headlines, manipulation, deep fakes, misinformation, disinformation. There's a lot that needs to be looked at these days to really understand what is going on in an image and how truthful it is. Yeah, exactly. And I did have some questions I worked up for this episode that I sent you ahead of time. Um, so let's go ahead and jump in on the first one. And that was given that most news outlets had been caught either manipulating photos or video to put a slant on the story. Why do you think they continue to do this? And I mean, this isn't something well, new. This has been going on like we were talking about before I brought you on the air. We were, uh, this has been going on since Stalin was in charge of the Soviet Union and he would have somebody in his inner circle killed and then have them airbrushed out of all their photographs. Yes, that's true. And there's also another famous one many of your listeners might know uh, from uh, just before World War II, 1942, with Mussolini uh, and his, his alteration to the photo was him on a horse showing a very powerful position and he had 
the horse handler taken out. And that was really to show his power. So this has been going on for a long, long time. Yeah, and that's the thing that's funny is most people think that photo manipulation is, is, a, is a, a more modern era type thing with the advent of, of programs like Photoshop. And it's like, no, <laughs> people have been air airbrushed out of photos for over 100 years. <laughs> that's definitely not new. Air airbrushed, cropped out, all kinds of techniques. Not necessarily high quality either. And that is one of the things that we should be looking at with the, the more contemporary modifications that are bad photoshops, so bad photoshops, you know, bad shadows, uh, eye lines, those kinds of things really need to be looked at to, to figure out what's going on in the photo and where it might be false. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because, you know, anytime one of these these type of manipulated or doctored photos turns up on the internet and creates a viral response and then you get somebody who's an actual expert in analyzing photography or photographs, and they can spot that it's a fake almost immediately, either because the lighting's wrong, the shadows are wrong, or something else is wrong in the image that they can pick up easily. So, and, and, it, and it, there are people out there that are incredibly talented, not necessarily for the better with Photoshop. I mean, I've seen some really convincing looking fakes. So there are people out there that have some crazy skills with Photoshop, but uh, the big thing that Jill and I don't want this to be a political episode. That's not our. That's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to make the listeners aware of the kind of things that are happening that you might not be aware of, especially in the advent of the internet and social media today, um, and as it ties into the media in general. Um, so we don't want this to become a political episode. That's not the idea. We want to raise awareness about doing your research. You know, if you see something online that doesn't seem right, maybe instead of just jumping on the bandwagon and flaming people over something, maybe do a little research and find out if the photograph is real or if it's a fake. Because a lot of times well, that, the images that cause the biggest uproar on the internet are completely fake. And, and that goes back to your first question is why do people continue to do this? And the reason is because they're getting a reaction. They are stirring conversation. They are getting people up in arms. They are motivating people. Um, whether you believe in climate change or not, for example, today we had a lot of protests all over the world. There's probably some things that we can do in terms of in the environment to improve. But a lot of what is being put out there is for the sole purpose of stirring up people and getting them riled up. And sadly, it has gotten to the point where people can no longer really recognize their own bias. And I think this is true for actually some journalists, many, many journalists. They are having a hard time being unbiased, putting their own uh, beliefs to the side and really looking at both sides of the coin. And, and it is doing what it's intended to do. It's getting people talking about it more so, you know, in favor of whatever the, um, the image is or the story is. If you're having a really strong reaction to something, that's the best time to check yourself. Am I having this reaction because it's 
totally off the wall. I would never believe it. It can't possibly be true. It probably can't with that kind of harsh, harsh emotional reaction. That's when the first time to, to really step back and say, wait, 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 is this true? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and one of the most famous recent photographs that, that caused a massive stir, as you and I were talking about before the show started, was the Time magazine cover uh, with the little Honduran girl that was crying and President Trump standing in front of her. And the headline was, Welcome to America. It would, and it was completely misleading. She was The little girl was never separated from her parents to begin with. It was all the, the manipulation of the photo and the spin that was put on it by the organization that put out the article. And it was to stir emotions and get people riled up. And I, I, I mean, like I said, we're trying to stay non-political on this, but it just stuff like that frustrates me because the current administration wasn't the first administration to be doing this anyways. It's been going on for 20, 30 years at the border. Um, you know, when we, well, when, when we catch people sneaking in into the country. In regards to that particular photo, the the story behind the image and the image for your listeners who might not know if you if they search up Honduran girl um, separated cover Time magazine they'll find it and you'll find the original image and the image was taken by John Moore who's a Getty photographer and uh, he with Getty you know produces images and then they are disseminated to a variety of different publications and how people use them is really up to that publication. One of the things that made this image so powerful and for the photographers out there, I really want them to be thinking about this is that the image is striking because of the way it's composed. It's um, at night. Uh, there's headlights shining on the girl in the middle of the frame who's wearing bright pink. It's a wide-angle shot, and the adults are cropped off at the hip. So as a viewer, you're going, you're being forced to look straight into that image, and it has a lot of power and emotion to it. It, it brings emotion. And so what would become misleading and, and turn this into a symbol is that the, the cut-line information the information that accompanied this image was the misleading part. And the photographer really didn't do, in my opinion, a good job of, of deciphering that and explaining that. And, and there are some articles from John Moore discussing this, and his uh, response was that it really wasn't up to him how the image ran, so he shouldn't, you know, it's not really his fault. And I, I felt that that was really not accepting responsibility for the impact that he had. And to me, that also implies he has his own personal agenda because if, if he was truly um, documenting what happened, that information would have been in the cut line. Now, don't get me wrong, this is a great picture, and I think it would still be a great picture even if um, it was just about the, the hardship of people going over the border. It still would have had the impact, but it was manipulated into something else. And before 
that was really investigated by editors and people that are putting these images into newspapers and magazines time took it and really, really took it out of context. And I think this is a clear manipulation of a, a political agenda. And Time and Newsweek both have become much more uh, political than they were, say, 30 years ago, where it really was um, giving, they were, both those magazines were giving us insight into, uh, let's say, you know, domestic and international atrocities and, and, and bringing to light things that were going on because we didn't have the internet to give us those. And their responsibility at that point, in some ways, was much greater. Now, what's happened is with this, because of the internet, for many reasons which we can talk about, but they have to compete with all these other organizations, citizen journalists, who don't have the same ethics as someone who's been trained in the field. And so they're tending to be more sensational rather than really going back to their roots, which is to report neutral, without bias, both sides of the story. And that idea of the editor is something that has been disappearing in media for a long time. Newsrooms are understaffed, newspapers are collapsing or have been collapsing for, for ages, magazines, all of that has been going away. Newsrooms are smaller and smaller. Photography departments, I think we may have talked about this on your other episode, are being wiped out and reporters are being told to, to document with a cell phone. And so there's not really the, the, the watchdog within the newsroom to look at this and say, and, and hey, this isn't quite right. You know, their pressure for, and I'm not trying to make excuses, I'm just saying how this has started to come about, is that the pressure for immediacy is much more about the quickness than the quality. And that's where it's all happening. You know, and if a newspaper or an article is going to get the quick hits, it's better for them to get those quick hits above another uh, story, and then they can retract. Whereas in the old days, it was like you were busted if you if you had to retract. That was a big, big thing. Now it's becoming more and more commonplace, and I think that's really sad. Oh, yeah, exactly. And um, I think you and I talked about this um, before. I don't remember if it was on the previous episode or if we talked about it privately. Um, but one of the things I recently started doing uh, over the last year was I've been doing some content that I provide for free for the Sparta Ishmaelite newspaper in Sparta, Georgia. And that's a prime example of what's happened to magazines and newsrooms across this country because Carly, the editor there, she originally had a staff of 40. Now it's just her. So she's the editor, the photographer, the reporter. She has to do everything all by herself. And it's just sad that because everybody wants immediacy, instant gratification today, because that's the way society has gone now, you know, these magazines and newspapers have to try to compete with that. You know, they have to downsize, they have to eliminate staff, like you were saying, and the quality and the ethics behind their stories just gets swept under the rug, I guess. I mean... Yeah. You know, 30, 30 years was, ago, 30 years ago, I would read Time Magazine. 
I, the only thing I'd use Time Magazine or Newsweek for today would be to start a fire. <laughs> I'd tear the pages up and use it to start a fire or something. That's about all I would use either one of them for anymore. I mean, and it's and it's sad. Um, and one of the things you know, you and I talked about in our email exchange, and uh, I know I had this as as question five, but you know, it's like I was saying, I have not seen a what I feel a genuinely honest news reporter or anchor, I guess you could say, since Walter Cronkite. And that's sad because you're talking, he retired, uh, what did he retire in the late 70s, early 80s? Yeah. yeah. And, and I think he's since passed away. But, you know, there was a reason why he was considered the most trusted man in America because he didn't have any bias or slant in his news stories. He presented the facts and let the viewer make up their mind for themselves. And at the end of every episode well, of CBS News that he anchored, he always ended every episode the same way. That's the way it was, whatever date it was that day, and that's it. And it was up to the viewer to decide I, I, how they felt about things. I, I think that's a, a really good point in terms of how much our ethics have changed generationally and in terms of not only the media, but as we, you know, have had more access to things and you know those days of everybody being private to now everything is public that all of those things in terms of generation and ethics have changed so many things and one thing that I want to point out in regards to your comments about Walter Concrete is that many many new broadcasters now have come from a political position. They may have worked in a political campaigns. They may be married to people in political parties that are very uh, popular, prominent. And so it's very important that we check the background of our anchors, of our broadcasters, of the reporters, where um, where did they work before? I do that a lot when I read an article and I, I, I'm starting to feel it's going a certain way. I will search up that person and see where they had worked before, um, if it's a newspaper or if it's some kind of organization. Often you will still have, you'll have lobbyists. And I've noticed on um, other uh, news organizations now, they're, they're actually stating that they are supported by another entity, a corporate entity. And we, of course, know that many corporate entities have a very clear bias. So being really uh, aware that a lot of the presenters that you will see on pretty much any mainstream media, right, the big stations, CBS, NBC, Fox, CNN, they, they have uh, quite a few who... Uh, have retired from politics to become analysts, right? And, and that's the thing that we have to, to understand too. They're analysts or consultants. They're, they're not necessarily calling themselves journalists, but they are presenting themselves as such. So it's really the idea with talking about all this for me is that Everyone needs to be aware of how we check your sources. The news is not going to go away, and we do need it, but you have to, it's not, 
as you have indicated, the trusted resource that we had in, in generations gone by. And even then, you know, there was always manipulation, as we discussed at the beginning of the show, you know, politics, images have been manipulated over time, and there's a lot of them out there. I think the thing that has become so um, disturbing is how prevalent it is, and and bringing attention to it. The, the word fake news is a trendy word that people are throwing out a lot. And I would ask you, you know, what do you define as fake news? What is the definition of fake news? And ask, you know, I'd like, you know, to know about that from your viewers. I mean, what, how do you define fake news? Because we are throwing that word around a lot. And it's important to know how many different forms that can come in. So, what would you say, Liam, putting the back on you, what would you say the definition of, of fake news is? Well, I mean, I consider an, organiza uh, an organization fake news when I start seeing them manipulate their news stories to push a, a particular political agenda or a slant. Um, and, we, mm -hmm. and, and we talked about this a little bit before we started this episode when we were casually chatting on the phone. Um, so a big one, and all of my listeners know I'm ex-military. I spent 10 years in the Army, and uh, I was a weapons and explosives specialist and a sniper, so that's what I did. And I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment. Now, again, we're not trying to get political, but I know it's a hot button or hot topic. Um, and what I hate to see is news outlets, no matter who they are, constantly pushing blatantly false narratives about guns. You know, the AR-15 is an assault weapon. No, it's not. It can't shoot full automatic. Oh, well, I, and I saw just, uh, I don't remember how long ago it was, but in the within the last year, a local NBC affiliate in Florida goes out to a gun range. Oh, we're going to show you today how devastating an AR-15 round is when it hits a watermelon. And the only problem was it was obvious to a blind person they weren't using an AR-15. They were using a 12-gauge pump shotgun. So when you're blatantly lying to the public like that in a news story, I consider you fake news, no matter who you are. Oh, that, that, that's a great example, and I think there's a lot to that. One, there is the potential for it to be completely biased and um, pushing an agenda, but I also think there's another option there, too, that maybe not in this particular case, but I think that reporters are candy lazy. So the, the, and editors, again, why aren't they researching exactly what it should be called, what it is? I mean, that's a pretty blatant, ob an obvious, um, myth disinformation, right? There's a difference between disinformation, which is the, uh, intentional use of information for a an agenda and then there's misinformation which has a little bit more leeway to it in that there could be <laughs> some actual mistakes right maybe it's as as much as under or overestimating the crowd right that that's an honest could be an honest mistake getting a name wrong things like that getting you know, someone who has not been in the military for 10 years or even touched a gun, 
will probably not know the difference between a handgun and a shotgun. You know, that's probably an exaggeration, a little bit of uh, disinformation there, but that, that's also what's happening. And that idea of labeling uh, the assault rifle is most deadly weapon or however they're um, it, describing things, those words that are put into the sentence are really also very loaded in terms of, of that bias. So cleaning, cleaning that language up and really spending time researching, okay, if you're going to do a story on guns, you really need to be, know what you're talking about. And you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect that in, say, a trade magazine for engineers. You wouldn't accept that in a trade magazine for a medical, uh, the, the American Foundation for Cancer Research. You would not accept that. And so this kind of, um, idea of putting things out there into a broad general public is part of the problem. And it's not only the lazy reporters and editors, it's the lazy consumers of the news as well. And we've become way too complacent, you know, hitting the like button on a Facebook post because it's black Trump and you, you may not like Trump or vice versa, you know, um, whatever, whatever your, your agenda is uh, taking a, a quick emotional uh, reaction to something is we as consumers of the news are also guilty of the threat, right? So it's up to us as the consumers of the news to, to stop that, to become media literate, to point to someone's post if it's on Facebook or somewhere else and say, hey, do you know that this is actually not called an assault rifle? Do you know that, uh, you know, help people to find the facts? I think that it's way too easy to get um, to say a story is true just because you agree with it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and getting back to the the gentleman I talked about a few moments ago, Walter Cronkite. I mean, I could see him today if if he was still active in the news. You know, at one of these, you know, televised events, whatever kind of event it is. You know, when somebody's calling an AR-15 an assault rifle, I could see him standing up, going, uh, "I've got a copy of Webster's Dictionary, and yeah, it doesn't fall into yeah. the category of assault weapon." <laughs> Because, I mean, Cronkite started out as a newspaper reporter, then eventually became a radio broadcaster, and then he was a war correspondent during World War II, so the guy had impeccable credentials. And unfortunately, unfortunately, he was one of the last reporters, uh, news reporters on TV especially, that had had actual credentials in in a very long and distinguished career as someone who just strictly reported the truth, what was actually happening. You know, a lot of that too is is uh, not necessarily about the reporter, but the the organization that they're working for. You know, what are they allowed to do? I think there's have been a lot of reporters out there that have tried to, uh, to you know be uh, neutral, be factual, to present those sides of the story, and 
there's a lot of hierarchy in in news organizations, as as everyone should know. You know, it starts off with the little reporter down at the bottom, but then it goes all the way up through lots of different editors and publishers. And now we have uh, a lot of publishers being um, a lot of organizations, I should say, that are owned by corporations such as Amazon and you know uh, other social media that has uh, investments in newspapers and publications, TV, England, for example, Murdoch News, all those organizations are conglomerates. And we know with corporations, the bottom line is business. And and with the shift of what's happened with media organizations, they are out there to look for, for the money. And it's the, the focus of uh, truth and transparency have have not been the priority for so long now that we are seriously in a crisis for for democracy, and that's the thing that really really concerns me. Uh, because look at I have a 13 year old son; he has no idea who Walter Cronkite. Cronkite ah, say it for me, Walter. Walter Cronkite. Thank you. You know, he has no idea, nor nor will he probably. And so we have a lot of people growing up in this environment that will know nothing else but what's happening. And, and that is really scary. And if we're not being allowed to make our own decisions based on facts, we are going to continue to get this um, split and divide and uh, hate, which I think is really not what we're about and definitely not what the media should be about. Yeah, exactly. And that, that was one of the points I was going to raise and you, and you hit the nail right on the head is too many of our news outlets, you know, whether it's the TV news, CNN, MSNBC or whoever, they're big conglomerates now and all they care about is their ad revenue. So they, uh, they uh, keep pushing the envelope further and further to one political bias or another just because it gets some ratings and it gets some more ad revenue and they don't actually care about the truth. And maybe it's not necessarily the reporters that work at that organization that, you know, walk, stomp all over the truth in a story. They're just doing whatever the higher ups are telling them because it'll create a sensational news story and go viral and make them all kinds of ad revenue. And, and you brought up a very good point. Um, with somebody like Jeff Bezos from Amazon buying out, what was it, the Washington Post he bought? And yeah, yeah, he bought that out. I guarantee he's got his slant at that organization for sure. And it, I, well, I, I mean, news outlets, especially newspapers, were much better off when they were small, privately owned organizations. Uh, now, granted, you had your larger city newspapers, you know, the LA Times or whatever the case may be. But it's just over the years, like you mentioned a moment ago, with more and more of these media outlets getting absorbed by bigger and bigger conglomerates that all, all, all they care about is ratings and ad revenue. They don't really care about whether or not the stories even get close to telling the truth. They just want something that's going to get them more ad revenue. Yeah, it is, it is pretty, pretty sad. I will say that uh, I think there's a relative amount of 
transparency. I mean, it's clear that uh, that organizations are left or right pretty pretty upfront, and and I don't think people need to really look that hard. I think they just need to be aware of it. So there's a, a site called Media Bias or Fact Check. And they actually have a rating on their website for different organizations. They have a, and I encourage everyone to check it out and, and have a look through uh, what they have on their website. They have a lot of uh, different categories and they even clearly mark on their website, this is left bias, this is left center bias, this is right. And so you can see when you click on one of those um, categories, all the different articles that will come up there. They'll also tell you uh, the range of what they, what this particular organization, were, you know, deemed as 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 left in terms of. So, so CNN they have marked as, you know, not all the way extreme but left, and Breitbart is all the way to the right, not extreme. So I think those analysis are fairly um, accurate, and I think there's some some folks are are out there using media and not really sure. That would be a good place to go. Now, what I want to also make sure everyone knows out there is these sites that are out there: Media Bias, Fact Check, Snopes. Um, there's there's a few others out there. They also have their bias, and what's as a media consumer, being someone who's media literate and able to recognize these things, it's a really good idea to, you know, when they have their about me or about us, I should say, go and see what is this saying, who are the founders, where did they work before, um, and you'll, you'll get uh, an idea. I think there is Although we're so consumed with this word of fake news and it is everywhere with photo manipulation, deep fakes is a really serious problem where uh, people will take a video or, uh, yes, a video and change uh, the voice over uh, to be something else and it looks very, very real. This is, this is really, really scary of what could happen. Um, to change a lot of things in our history, and I advise everybody go go look at deep fakes. Um, there's a great one of Obama and comedian Jordan Peele that really puts a good perspective on the potential for the dangers with this. But what's important for us as as consumers is being aware of where our news is coming from, and I think there really are uh, organizations that are trying, at least trying out there to do some fact checking to, you know, label things. This is fake, you know, half-half, uh, you know, this is a, 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 you know, a satirical piece, right? Knowing that this was, this is a joke, you know, don't get crazy on yourself about it. You know, this is a joke. I think being able to understand what kind of sites are out there, and what kind of articles there are, and who's writing them. It's really important for us to be able to know. It's fine if you're going to read something that's to one side or the, the other. And you may even agree. But know that. Be aware of that. Take a pause. 
recognize that. Don't look at an organization like CNN or Fox, whichever stream you fall in, and believe that they're writing or presenting in a way that's presenting both facts. And I think most people out there are intelligent enough to recognize that someone is talking to you and you're agreeing with everything they say, that's probably really limited one side conversation and article. So so my my point to everyone out there is really just know that if you're looking at something where it's coming from and who's supporting it. Yeah, exactly. Well, and there was another good one in your presentation that you sent to me um, that I did want to touch on briefly. So, uh, you know, as everybody knows, um, we they had the mass shooting that killed 50 people in two New Zealand mosques on, uh, was that March 15th of this year or last year? I'm trying to remember now. It was this year. This year. This yeah, year. I thought it was. Um, and then in the aftermath of the shooting, several religious and cultural organizations in New York City hosted a demonstration on the 24th of March against Islamophobia and hate. But then someone else took the video and posted it on his Facebook with the misleading caption, Muslim rally in New York demanding Sharia rights in the United States. And... People got all up in arms about this. I mean, you know, your your article that you sent to me has screenshots of some of the comments that people left on this. And it's just insane that nobody bothered to actually do a little bit of research and find out that the video didn't actually show what he was claiming when he reshared it on Facebook, that it was something that had absolutely nothing to do with implementing a new form of law and justice in the United States, but it had to do with trying to, to bring people together, you know, and, and show support for all people of all faiths and cultures and to try to reduce the, the hate in the world. And it, I mean, it was twisted and totally taken out of context. And I guarantee the the person that did it, did it just to get their 15 minutes of fame on the internet. Oh, I think that particular instance was much more than just 15 minutes. I think that was a very planted uh, situation. So just to give your, your viewers a little bit more context, this was a, a, a video that ran on Facebook showing uh, Muslims, and it appeared to be in New York. It was, it was said that it was in New York City. So uh, right there, that kind of, get people excited uh, that this is happening. And actually, I, I got some information from someone who's a verification journalist, and this is something that's really new, uh, fairly new, I should say, where people are actually journalists analyzing this kind of thing on social media and in the news and really diving into it and uh, decoding the images, the comments, where it's being posted from, how it's being used. And they knew right away that it was fake because of the, the setting that this was in. And then they found other images from another protest, or excuse me, the same protest, uh, where there were more signs visible and they could see what this um, actual, it was a march. It wasn't a protest, it was just a march. And the caption that got everyone really excited about it was that it said Muslims rally in New York City demanding their Sharia rights. And it has 10,000 shares, 
237 comments, and they were not pretty at all. They were very, very ugly and hatred, full of hatred. And in between those comments, you would say, you would see other comments where people would say, hey, look, this is not real. You check yourself. And then people would laugh more. This is not real. Look at this, you know, trying to get people to stop. And uh, when the journalist went back to find me, this, this person, it's a made up person. And I'm sure this was much more intentional than one guy going out and and um, trying to stir up the hatred. I think this was, I don't know who, um, you can guess or put your own, you know, reasoning to why someone would do this, but it, it really made a lot of people very angry, and I fell into it. I fell into it. I looked at that, and I was like, no way, this cannot be true. And I probably did something, you know, interacted with it before I checked myself. And I'm ashamed of that. I really am ashamed of that. But I got caught up in the emotion and I knew if there was something in it that always made me, it stuck with me. It wasn't like, it, you know, the regular post from your friend, you hit like and you never think about again. This was something I interacted with it and it didn't feel right. It, it, it just something felt off to me. And when I talked to this uh, verification journalist and she had a lot of other examples, that this was the first one that came up and I just, my heart sank knowing I knew it. I knew it. I knew that was just, I knew it was wrong because my reaction was so extreme so intense and and that was a really really good learning lesson for me i i don't think i shared it or spread it i i and i i don't remember how i interacted with the post but i know it made me very uncomfortable and it just never sat right and i i want to encourage your viewers or your listeners to to take that minute to breathe and be like whoa is this real you know, because it's a skewed hatred. It's very difficult to find online now. It is up, but it's, it's really difficult to uh, find. But I can provide a, a link for for your viewers if they're, if they're interested. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. And, and I don't feel bad because I've fallen for this a couple of times on the Internet myself, you know, where I see something that gets me really fired up and then I'm like, Wait a minute. If I'm getting this fired up about it, maybe there's something wrong here. Yeah. And then you do a little and bit of I, research I, and you find out, it, you know, that the image or the video is real, but the context or the captions included with right. it, were, you know, were completely false. Right. And I think that's almost in some ways more dangerous than complete manipulation because sometimes you can tell. But if it's only a word or two that is out of place or a very, you know, strong bird uh, or a really misleading headline, that, that's a huge problem, huge problem. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, um, and, I, and I think we discussed this back when I was still finishing up my bachelor's degree, um, over the last couple of years, News agencies such as Reuters have switched to using only JPEG files from mm -hmm. photojournalists, claiming 
that it, that it prevents image manipulation. But my question is, how is it preventing image manipulation when there are plenty of people out there that have the Photoshop or editing skills to manipulate any kind of image? I was kind of yeah, puzzled. I was kind of puzzled by that decision by Reuters. It is an interesting decision, um, and the the actual. I was reviewing that policy, and they're actually saying that they want the images to be shot in JPEG. I believe the correct wording is, um, or at least the camera should have made a J, the JPEG image onto the card. So. That's kind of confusing. So are people shooting in RAW and JPEG? You know, it, it's, uh, I'm, I'm confused by that decision as well. And part of it might be that their initial reaction is it's on a timely thing, right? So you go to the, the latest hurricane or disaster, you wouldn't really have time to necessarily sit down and manipulate a photo and not only manipulate it, but then destroy whatever metadata is in there that would show any indication to that. So that's kind of the way that I'm, I'm thinking about it, but I really, it, it, it is interesting. I think the, the, the reason is because it's just happening so much, they have to make some kind of policy to get people to be more aware of it. And I imagine, too, that it's probably more for um, citizen journalists, freelance journalists who may have not had the training uh, as kind of more of a, hey, don't do this. You know, this is the way that we want the file. I don't know. Does it really protect? I don't think there really is anything out there that can protect uh, except our knowledge, our our gut instincts. There's a, a many, many famous images lately um, that have come through the World Press Foundation, and they've changed a lot of their rules as well, where they've been mis manipulated. Um, and, and not necessarily the content, but for example, use high definition to enhance the the poverty, the the blood, the gut, so you know, to make it more impactful when, you know, you look at some of these pictures and they don't need any manipulation at all. They are devastating and horrific already. So a lot of that is happening, I feel, because of the the the, the photographer's personal um, interest in fame or, or competition and that is a problem right because it's starting out from that basic level of if, if you're a photographer who's going to do something like that then what won't you do yeah, right exactly. so that that's kind of the, the bigger issue there's another photographer who I think he did a, a an article, I, I don't remember the circumstances exactly, I believe it was in Belgium or Brussels, um, and he was doing a, a, a story on uh, sex workers, I believe, um, and photographed uh, a couple having sex in, in the car, in the, in the backseat of a car, and it turns out it was his cousin and his girlfriend, but he labeled it as being, you know, a sex worker, which is completely, 
misinformation, not misinformation, disinformation. And the only reason that it was found out was because that they, someone looked at the image and saw that there was another light within the car lighting them up. So a computer is not necessarily going to find that. It's only someone who knows, hey, is a couple really going to be in this car having sex with a light on? You know, that's something that has to happen with human interaction and just your own detective skills. So everything in that image could be truthful in terms of its initial surface representation. But then when we actually take, you know, our educated eyes, photographers and editors and look at it, it's something completely different. And that, again, is what... You know, is there the education? Is there the, are there, I should say, the editors that are able to do that, that have the experience at these organizations? I think those are the, the bigger issues rather than, you know, just solely looking at an image based on the content and thinking it's Photoshop. It's much, much more than that. Yeah. And the, the only other thing I could think of is a possible reason for Reuters um, insisting on JPEGs was getting back to what we talked about at the beginning of this episode, and that's the immediacy. Um, mm-hmm. So in order to get the story and get the photos out, you know, to press, whether it's newspapers or TV news or whatever, they need to be able to get the images as fast as possible. And, you know, as all I'm sure most of my listeners know, that are photographers, raw files are extremely large. <laughs> You can't exactly up- yeah. you can't exactly upload those quickly to uh you know to a server or whatever um for your editor to look at um and I can understand that aspect because uh, the company that I do real estate photography for when I started almost a year ago I shot raw like I always shoot everything raw and just earlier this year they had me start testing an on site program where they wanted us to start shooting JPEG. Um, now for our clients, the images have to be specific pixel dimensions, you know, length and height. Mm -hmm. Um, but based on what the clients require, I discovered, you know, Hey, we can just shoot JPEG and do medium and uh, the pixel dimensions are right about perfect, right where they want. So we now do that. But the main reason why. Our, my company switched us to shooting JPEG with, so we could upload the images on site and the clients could get these houses to market faster. You know, they could get the, the high, quali- yeah. high quality images on the, uh, what is it called? The uh, MLS website system or whatever, whatever it right. is they use for real right. estate, FMLS or whatever it's called. Um, right. So that's the big reason why we did it as a company is we switched to, um, to do in JPEG so just so we could upload on site and get the images out to the client faster. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that has something to do with the changes that they've made as well. Yeah, exactly. Less opportunity to speculate. Now, uh, one of the last things I wanted you to touch on a little bit, uh, because you do have a great presentation uh, uh, on it right here, um, are some of the types of bias that you can find in, especially images. Oh, that's it. That is a really great question, especially in regards to images, because 
many people will say uh, photography is not biased. I was there. I took the picture, and that's a fact, right? And let's let's put Photoshop aside for a minute. But by your angle, your lens choice, your perspective, you can still create an image that reflects a certain point of view. And, and really, that's what we're trying to do as photographers. We're trying to tell a story. And so we're experts in choosing that right angle, choosing the, the lens. But the things that can also add to that kind of bias are the things that aren't being included in that lens, you know, in, in that image. Um, a great example would be you go to a protester march, similar to what we just discussed, and there are two people at that particular march. Well, you can make it look like there were, it was very intense just by focusing on those two people and their two signs. Say on the other side, there's a whole bunch of other people. You could not even shoot those people and say, these people are pro whatever. And they're really, you know, you didn't, with, by omission and not saying there's 200 other people on the other side of the road, that's a bias and that's, that's a dis, you know, disinformation. You're not providing all the information. The other way is with images of course, it is the, the, the cut lines, which we discussed with the Honduran girl. How is the image being, um, what is the, the text that's accompanying it, right? I, I will admit, as a young photojournalist, I had uh, some, I do have some of my own opinions, of course, but I tried to keep them in check with one particular incident with a, with a politician that I didn't particularly like, and I didn't photograph her in a very appealing way, right? And so I didn't um, do any photograph her um, doing anything that she wasn't doing. And but I made her. I didn't make her. She was not looking her lovely self. And you can see that. And this is not at all political. You could see this with the images that are being used of Trump over and over and over and over again. And if you think about the, the images that people are taking, they're taking hundreds, thousands of them. You know, it's not every image on your card is going to be of him with his mouth open or his hands uh, being overly orange or his hair flipping up to look like a, a toupee. You know, there's a plenty you can pick on in terms of his physical appearance, but to do that constantly is, in my opinion, a form of that thread of that, that bias. I mean, they're really, every, every news organization that I've seen, both sides of the coin are doing it, you know, and you see it more often when it's something that's very, negative and heated or absurd, you know, they, they'll find the most absurd picture of the Trump to run with the most absurd headline. So that just adds to the weight of it. So that's, the, that's also the editing. So who, 
you're you're the photographer, you're giving them these opt-ins, five or six opt-ins per per seat, and you're including all you're giving them are the wacky ones, then that's all they have to choose from. They have to use it. And it's not just Trump, but everyone, right? How you edit your images, and you can, you know, your, your viewers out there that are um, portrait photographers, they know exactly what I'm talking about with how you photograph a client. You can make them look a million different ways, you know, but you know, as a, as a commercial photographer, you need to make them look good because that's what you're hired for. So journalists doing the opposite of that, to me, is a disservice. Yeah, how you place, you know, how you place uh, subjects, where you place them in the frame, um, what, how you use perspective in terms of images, again, that all can can be a part of the influence, right? So we know as photographers, we don't really want to see people that are heavy set from below, right? Because that's not a very flattering look. But if you wanted to make someone not look their best and you wanted that to go out because you had a personal issue with them, like myself, and I'm admitting it, you know, I knew it was wrong when I did it and I'm ashamed of myself now because I realized how that one little incident from me in a small little tiny paper has not that I was the start of any trend, but gosh, just how much that has expanded is so scary. And if I'm one little person who's naive at 24 doing that, imagine what is going on right now. And again, that's where we as photographers, excuse me, Excuse me, and and consumers of news uh, of news have to stop and make people stop and look at things properly. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, I I think we definitely need to start holding more people accountable for the content that they put out. And, and getting back to the the what we were talking about at the beginning with the Honduran girl image that Time used on their cover. I mean, me personally, if I was John Moore, I'd have been all over that. That's just me, maybe. I don't know. But if somebody... What used, do you mean? Well, you know, the fact that the photograph was used so far out of context, it wasn't even funny. I would have been I would have been going to news outlets and be like, uh, yeah, no, this, this is not what I shot. <laughs> and maybe it'd be an uphill battle. I don't know. But yeah, I'd, I would have definitely, well, I would have definitely been miffed if my photograph was ma manipulated in that way. But he did shoot it. It wasn't manipulated. That was the real image. It was the text accompanying it that made it disinformation. Well, that right? may, that may, that in time photoshopped Trump into the image too. Okay. If you yeah, think about it, that, yeah, because on the that, cover of Time magazine, it's just the girl by herself and Trump standing in front of her. Correct. Correct. Well, and I I think it was. Excuse me. More of the responsibility of Getty Images, too, to because John Moore is a Getty Getty photographer. They have a certain responsibility, in my opinion, as well, to uh, upholding those editorial um, images. Oh yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> and you're right. I mean, 
um, the John Moore situation can be a variety of things. It could be, um, and I just, you know, like to encourage everyone to look on some of the articles that look for some of the articles that were written. Um, it could be his own personal bias. It could be really about his um, ego, right? Knowing that this image went this far. He's a very well-known photographer and has had numerous words in the photojournalism world. So he's at a level that um, I believe he wants to maintain. So, and, and again, this is personal opinion. This is me reading into it. And I would really, you know, as we're talking about right now, do your own research and and on this particular in picture because this really is a a great one to look at and analyze and see who used it, how they used it, how it was manipulated, what did it do to this issue, um, and you know why wasn't there more about the the truth coming out? I think. In terms of actually the disinformation that is out there, this one did receive a significant amount of backlash in the media to explain the situation. <clears throat> and I think that is a good start. Yeah. Yeah, we just need to take it further. Like you said, you know, people need to research. They need to look into, you know, whether or not the person they're listening to on whatever media outlet is an actual reporter or if they're a pundit or whatever the case may be. Yes. You know, yes. check out their credentials and see if they're they're legitimately a journalist or if they're just somebody that's a paid lackey <laughs> is what I would call them. Um, but yeah, yeah this, I mean, this has been a great episode. Um, a lot of great information that you shared and a lot of things for my listeners to think about. Definitely when it comes to doing research on anything, it, you know, like you said, if, if it's something to get you that fired up, then maybe you need to step back for a second, calm down, do a little bit of research and find out the truth behind the image or the video instead of just uh, flying off the handle. If it affects you that much, you need to step back and take an honest look at it. Absolutely. And, and try to to stop it and try to educate people on, you know, what's happening, listening to this podcast. I'm happy to provide more links. I can provide you with the links of, of places to look at. And there's tons of research out there. Um, it, it's not completely hopeless, but we need to have people like you and me and your listeners out there stopping it. It's happening all over the world. There are organizations that are coming together for uh, the sole purpose of finding out fake news, volunteers in small countries where their news is very, very manipulated are coming together and, and working on this. And I think it has to be fought by us, the consumers. And um, little by little, it's, it's better than nothing. And we have a very dangerous season of politics coming upon us. And I would encourage everyone to really just check your own bias. Check your own bias. Exactly. Well, I think this has been a fantastic episode. I want to wrap up this segment, but I did want to ask you before we end the episode completely, uh, what have you been working on lately? 
Oh, thanks. Yeah, I just come across a great the story that I'm really excited to, to share. I am working with a woman that I actually met through Toastmasters. And if you don't know what Toastmasters is, I highly encourage everyone to check it out. It's a organization that helps you to become a better speaker and leader. And it's all over the world in every country. And I met a woman through that and through uh, different meetings to uh, my friend. Her name is Rachel Magario, and she's a creative and an entrepreneur and storyteller. And she also happens to be completely blind and has had a passion ever since she was a kid to do a travel documentary show. And me and my love for travel and documentary, we just clicked right away. So we're working together to do a series of uh, webisodes, vlogs, um, and possibly Kickstarter to uh, document her adventures. We're starting in Colorado, going around to different locations to show um, her interacting with the community and people and really giving an audience more insight into uh, what it's like to, to be Rachel. And she's an amazing woman who speaks seven languages, has four degrees, and nothing will stop her. And she is very, very insightful into people and I think really uh, can make people see a little bit differently. Um, into themselves and what's around them by uh, sharing her insights. So I'm really excited we're doing some video and some stills, and I'd love for your viewers and uh, listeners, I keep calling them viewers because they're photographers, so I know they're viewers, uh, to follow up, follow me, check out. We'll be doing our first um, shooting tomorrow at a water lantern festival, which is... Uh, where you take a paper lantern and push it out with a little message onto a lake. And this is actually her idea. You know, people say to her, well, you can't see. Why would you want to go to that? But she can feel the energy of the light and the mood. And so we're going to go uh, explore that together. And she'll be interviewing people about what they see and, and how that all uh, reflects on, on who we are as people. I'm, I'm really excited about it. So thank you for asking. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like some exciting work that you're going to be doing there. And I definitely want to hear more about that as it progresses. And uh, any uh, any links or anything like that that you want to, want to have me add to the show notes for this episode, I'll be more than happy to do that because that definitely sounds exciting. Sounds like something's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, absolutely. And you should have Rachel on CBT. Does she's going to do a lot of the video editing um, with time code, and she has an Instagram page that she takes pictures and gets them up there, and she's you know amazing and very very inspiring, and she loves uh, movies and I mean the idea of being a, a documentary photographer, I think. Uh, or documentary filmmaker as a blind person is super inspiring whether you're sighted or not. So yeah, I think your your audience will really enjoy what we come up with. So thank you for for uh, asking me that, and I hope you I can uh, get more interest with it. 
Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, it might not be a bad idea to uh, to have Rachel or you and Rachel both on an upcoming episode to talk about the project. I oh, that would be so fun. Yeah, I think yes. that would definitely be an awesome idea. She's got a wicked sense of humor. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. But yeah, I think it's cool that you guys are doing this documentary project. I think it would definitely be something I'd want to uh, check out. I love that kind of stuff. Great. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. I'm going to go ahead and we'll wrap up this episode. We're at uh, about an hour and 10 minutes, right around there, um, which is good. Um, as I've mentioned before, you know, I like the interview episodes to be a longer format, 45 minutes to an hour, a little over an hour is perfectly fine. Um, and again, Jill, I want to thank you for being on the show, your second appearance on the show. You've been fantastic as Woo-hoo! always. <laughs> I've got to see if I can get some of the other former professors on here. I haven't had much luck getting any of the rest of mine yet, but I'm still working on it. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Oh, they're out there. Yeah. Yep. I've got a few of them on Facebook. I just got to get a chance to circle up with some of them. But yeah, it was wonderful to have you on here again. And we'll probably end up having you as a a reoccurring guest, especially with this documentary project that you're working on with Rachel. That sounds like something we should definitely have on the show. Uh, A good at length discussion about the project. Thank you. And and thank you. It's an honor to be on your show. And I really, this is one of my topics that I absolutely love and really hope that um, something like your podcast can make a little bit of difference in a little bit of our corner of the world the world by, by getting people to, to stop and think. So thank you for having me on and letting me talk about it. Absolutely. And thank you again for being my guest. And we'll go ahead and wrap up the call here. I'll let you get back to things uh, out there in Colorado. I'm sure you've got things to do, and it's getting late on the East Coast, so I definitely got things I got to wrap up yet. But definitely, send, definitely Cheers. send me any links you want me to share as part of the show notes too. I will. I will. Thank you, and thank you all your listeners, viewers out there. I appreciate it. <laughs> all right, thanks, Jill. You have a good evening. You too. Good night. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, That is the wrap on episode 37 of Liam Photography Podcast, uh, which, again, the subject was photo ethics, uh, photo ethics today. And I hope you enjoyed listening to the show. Again, I want to thank all of my subscribers for listening, rating, and reviewing in iTunes and anywhere else that you find the show. Also, be sure to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group, but you can join. You have to answer a question in order to be accepted into the group. And that question is name the, give the name of the host of the show, which is myself. You can either put Liam or Liam Douglas, and that will get you in. Uh, once you're in the group, you are allowed to post your own original work, your own photographs. Uh, you can post up to five every 24 hour period. You can either do them, uh, you know, throughout the course of the day, every few hours, post a new one. Or you could do all five at once and let Facebook create the little slideshow thing for you. Uh, Either one is fine. Please do not share other people's photos. Even if you have their permission, that will get you banned from the group. We want you to only share your own original work. And you can also ask for creative criticism or critiquing of your work just by posting your photos with the caption CC please. And myself or one of the other photographers in the group would be more than happy to take a look and give you some constructive criticism on changes you could make to improve your 
or up your photography game. All right. I want to thank all my listeners again, and I will see you next week in episode 38.